0: It's expansion time. Plugged in. This is Nashville C and Inter Miami talking a Nashville Soccer Podcast, but as I said, this is expansion time and so we're going to get straight into it and I've got a great guest that I have not seen since January. A lot has happened. First of all, RIP Kobe Bryant. That's yes. One thing.
1: Yes, he was there that he was, he was there, there that weekend in LA. Yes.
0: Indeed. I have not seen Michelle Kaufman of Inter Miami Beat writer for the Miami Herald. She's been there for quite a some time, but obviously Inter Miami is a new thing for Michelle. But also Nashville SC is a new thing for me. But we were there at Bank of California Stadium in January. Obviously, the MLS Media and Marketing Tour, the first chance for really Nashville and Inter-Miami to at least get that type of introduction to maybe some of the other teams, the big time markets obviously espn fox everyone was there and a lot has happened since then and we'll be talking about the difference between nashville sc and inter miami's experience in their expansion year and of course what it's been like for michelle and i and the differences between i guess covering both of these two clubs michelle thank you so much for coming on
1: Sure. Anytime. I love to talk about soccer and Inter-Miami has become a big part of my life now because when you're a beat writer, it's, it never ends.
0: So just for context, you are actually around or at least very knowledgeable of soccer in Miami at the professional level before Inter-Miami
1: yes i have been here since 1996 probably before what year were you born i'm afraid to ask i'm afraid
0: to answer that because i'm very much well i'm born in 1996.
1: okay well so (laughs) i was already covering i was already covering pro soccer when drake was you know in the nursery at the hospital so that's how old i am pretty much in,
0: in the mls's lifetime as well
1: yes exactly so i covered the start of mls i covered the 94 world cup uh in the united states And then um, I covered the launch of MLS and the launch of the Miami Fusion um, in 1997, which was the original Miami MLS team. And I actually flew to New York. These were different times. They had their launch in New York at MLS headquarters, and I got flown there. They unveiled their jersey, which was a very cool jersey, by the way, with a blue and yellow sun type thing. Logo. Yeah, definitely Google
0: that if you get the chance. I
1: really do like that logo. Miami Fusion anyway. was dope. Yeah. So I just found their media guides. Actually, I was cleaning out my office. We're doing a renovation in my home office, and I found the four media guides of 98, 99, 2000, 2001. <laughs> so uh, I have all of those, and it's amazing who's in there because – a lot of the executives and coaches from MLS now played on that team. So right. Jeff Kassar, Garth Lagerway, uh, you know, Kyle Beckerman was on that team. Nick Ramondo was on that team. Pablo Mastroeni, uh, you know, Eric Winalda played here. So it's unbelievable how many people played here. Uh, Jay Heaps played here. Anyway, so, <clears throat> so I covered the launch of the Miami team back in 97. And then 98 was their first season. It was very similar. Uh, some things about Miami don't change. Mainly the politics. The politics of Miami don't change. They're very complicated. No one can ever come to a, a uh, you know, no one can ever come to a compromise on anything. So that hasn't changed. In 1997, when they launched the Miami Fusion, very much like when they launched Inter Miami six years ago, the idea was this is going to be a Miami team in the 305. I repeat, 30 five (laughs) that is miami that is not fort lauderdale that is not broward county that is miami-dade county where you know we have a huge hispanic population a huge immigrant population that is very passionate about soccer um you know so the idea has always been from the beginning from 97 the idea has been mls wants a team really wants a team in the urban heart of miami a hispanic very latin team that's going to appeal not only to people in Miami, but the idea for the Miami MLS team has always been that this is gonna be the gateway team for Latin America. They want this Miami team to expand the tentacles of the league outside the U.S. borders into Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Central America, and the Caribbean, Jamaica, Haiti. So there are so many soccer fans in the Caribbean and in South America That don't pay attention to MLS. And the idea has always been from day one, 1997, to have a Miami team in the urban core of Miami that will be a very Hispanic team with Hispanic star players, and it will appeal, it will become the second team. Their goal is, MLS's goal with Miami has always been to make this team the Latin American fans, second team. So they're going to have their team, Boca Juniors, Independiente, whatever. They're going to have their teams in Latin America that they love, Mm -hmm. but they want this team to be their second team because this is where Latin Americans come to vacation. All Latin Americans have relatives and friends who live in Miami. So the idea is bring Latin players to Miami, have an MLS team that is very global in reach and it will reach out to fans all over Latin America. And then people in in those countries will be wearing MLS jerseys around on the streets of Buenos Aires, on the streets of Brazil, on the streets of Colombia and Bogota. So that's always been the, um, the goal and the strategy to have this very Hispanic team that's gonna be reaching out to South American fans. And so basically what happened though in both cases, then and now, is that the Miami politicians, who can never agree on anything, they squabble and squabble and squabble over the stadium. Squabble, 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 squabble over the stadium. We have a county mayor and a city mayor here. <clears throat> we have two mayors, the county mayor, the city mayor. They are never ever in agreement. If the city mayor likes an idea, the county, the county mayor must hate that idea. And if the county mayor has an idea, the city mayor must hate that idea. So with that kind of negotiating going on, nothing gets accomplished when it has to do with stadiums. The other complication with Miami is that the the Miami Marlins had a very controversial stadium issue and a lot of fans Mm -hmm. still have a sour taste in their mouth over that. So when Jorge Mas and David Beckham started looking for stadium sites, The initial plan was David Beckham had this dream from six years ago. He stood on the waterfront of Miami. He stood on the waterfront with a beautiful backdrop. You've got beautiful David Beckham standing in a beautiful suit in front of an incredible skyline and blue turquoise water with little sailboats bobbing and and said, I want to launch my MLS team in Miami and I want a waterfront stadium. So, He was very excited. He thought he was going to go to waterfront stadium that was going to be like a U-shaped horseshoe stadium that's going to look out over the turquoise water and the bobbing sailboats. The aerial views would be unbelievable from TV to span all over the world, all over Latin America. In his mind, there's going to be a team on the waterfront in Miami with Latin American stars with a fancy stadium. And the images are going to be of this waterfront gorgeous stadium with sailboats and beautiful women and beautiful men wearing fancy clothing and celebrities showing up for the games. And that is what the that's what the vision was, okay? That, that got shot down. They went to plan B, that got shot down. They went to plan C, that got shot down. So, I won't go let, through let, all let, the let, letters let, of the alphabet, but they went to five different sites all five sites could not be agreed upon. So those were the Miami.
0: plan B through D essentially is the different sites.
1: The different sites included everything from, um, the, well, initially it was going to be, initially he wanted it on the port, in the port of Miami. The port of Miami is on an island called Watson Island. So you have cruise ships. The, the backdrop would have been cruise ships and turquoise water. Okay. That was the initial plan. That, went, that failed because the cruise ship companies did not want the stadium to share their little island with them. Partly because it was uh, honestly, partly what I heard is because it was gonna block the views of the skyline up from the executives of some of these cruise lines who have a beautiful view of the city of Miami. And if you put a stadium, it was gonna block their view. So anyway, the port was out. Then they looked at another waterfront site right next to American Airlines Arena which is where the Miami Heat plays. So there's a slip of land directly next to American Airlines Arena, which in my mind would have been perfect because you've already got a stadium there, the basketball arena, you would have a soccer stadium next to it. That's also called Museum Park. We have a, muse- a art museum and a science museum that are also in that same stretch along Biscayne Boulevard, along the Biscayne Bay, along the water. And their idea, David Beckham's people, their idea was To have a stadium next to Miami Heat Stadium and have a a promenade, a promenade that would connect the museums with the soccer stadium, with the basketball stadium, basketball arena, and, and have like little kiosks there with food, little bars, little restaurants, street entertainers. And people would be able to walk along from the museums to the soccer field, soccer stadium, to the basketball game. You know, it seemed like a great idea. Well, that got shot down. Um, You know, the the politicians didn't like it. The environmentalists got involved and said that that was a very sacred piece of land, which it really wasn't. It's really not used for anything. But anyway, so that went through, that fell through. Then they looked at a a parcel of land right next to Marlins Stadium. So they then said, okay, we're gonna go to Marlins, next to Marlins Park, the baseball park. Mm -hmm. The original going back, to 1997, let's go backwards, when they decided to demolish the Orange Bowl Stadium and build Marlins Park, the original plan, the original drawings, architectural drawings have two stadiums there, a baseball park and a 25,000 seat soccer stadium right next to it for MLS. That was the original plan to have a soccer stadium next to Marlins Park. And it was going to be a giant sports park with the two, Two sports side by side. So Jorge Mas went back to that idea. Oh, well, let's go back to that idea. They've got the land right next to Marlins Park. This was the original plan way back when anyway. Let's do it there. That's right in the middle of Miami. They've already got the Marlins Park there. There's no environmental anything going on there. No water, no nothing, no birds, no wildlife to be seen, except some lizards. So let's build it there. No, that fell through. Partly because of politics and partly because the Marlins and Jorge Mas could not come to some agreements. Uh, That was also complicated because Jorge Mas initially tried to buy the Marlins. When Derek Jeter bought them, Jorge Mas was one of the bidders on that deal. So there's some friction there. I'll leave it at that. That's a whole other conversation. But there's some friction between Jorge Mas and the Marlins. So anyway, bottom line is there were five different venues. None of them worked. So they decided they're going to build this giant, amazing stadium next to the airport. And they've already gotten clearance from the voters. The voters voted very, very strongly to build it there. But the commissioners have still not agreed on it. And so the season had to start. They had nowhere to play, so last April, believe it or not, last April they went to Fort Lauderdale to the exact site where the Miami Fusion wound up playing. April
0: 2019, by the way. Huh? April
1: 2019. April 2019. April 2019, um, you know, they they decided that they're just going to build a temporary stadium and their training facility in Fort Lauderdale, and that is on the site of the former Lockhart Stadium which is where the Miami Fusion had the same problem. In 97, when I told you the idea was to have a global team in urban Miami in 1997, what happened there was the owner then whose name was Ken Horowitz, he got into a big feud with the mayor of Miami at that time who was named Mayor Coroyo. Mayor Coroyo and Ken Horowitz could not come to terms on the stadium. So Ken Horowitz said, forget it, I'm going to Fort Lauderdale. And I'm going to renovate Lockhart Stadium, which was a high school stadium with bleachers on both sides, metal bleachers. It's in the middle of an industrial park area. There is nothing there. When I tell you, if you (laughs) wanted to walk, if you wanted to walk from that site to a restaurant, the two dining options you would have are a Dunkin' Donuts and a McDonald's. Okay, they do have a Dunkin' Donuts and a McDonald's walking distance from the stadium.
0: It's good for it's like, a writer, I guess, on um, last-minute diet. Yeah, it's, on it's deadlines or whatever. Deadline.
1: But that is where, believe it or not, so that's where the Fusion ended up in 1998, playing there in Lockhart Stadium. I never in my wildest dreams thought, when David Beckham stood there on the waterfront in February of, of 2014 and said that he had dreams of a waterfront stadium in Miami, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be covering Inter-Miami in Fort Lauderdale, North Fort Lauderdale, by the way. It's not even in the heart of Fort Lauderdale. We're talking, it's almost in Boca. It takes me an hour to get there. I know it's not all about me, but it is. Um, so it takes me an hour to get to the stadium. It is in the same industrial park area at the same exact place where Lockhart was. They knocked down Lockhart stadium. They built I'll give it to them. They built a beautiful facility. He spent. It's quite nice.
0: They've got the black yes. and the pink in there, and it, it's actually, it's actually it's a, a beautiful, beautiful stadium.
1: It is beautiful, and he spent sixty million six zero on their temporary facility and their training site. So, he has invested $60, six zero million dollars in that facility in Fort Lauderdale, and that's not even supposed to be their real stadium. To my knowledge,
0: stadium. to my knowledge, that's also the home for their hopeful academy, and obviously in the the,
1: the USL team, the USL
0: there. League One team that's playing as well. Yeah, the stadium is like really very
1: nice. The training facility, pitches. yeah, the training facility is beautiful. Um, it's fifty thousand square feet. I believe it's one of the largest in MLS. There are seven lighted fields. Um, you know, they're all grass, well, six grass and one turf. Beautiful fields. They're unbelievably maintained in their training facility. The and it's got. Their gym has an underwater treadmill. I mean, they have all kinds of the latest technology. So they have an incredible training facility. Across the parking lot is the stadium. The stadium is 18,000 seats. It was beautifully done. It's black, pink, and gray. The color schemes are fantastic. It's very modern looking. It's very sleek. It's very Miami, to be honest, to be sitting in an industrial park in Fort Lauderdale. It has a very Miami look and a very Miami feel. It's like very hip. It's very cool looking. Um, And unfortunately, what happened is COVID came. I'll tell you when you talk about covering this team on March 12th, March 12th, two days before their supposed home opener, they played their first two games on the road at LAFC. And then their second game was at DC United, which I went and covered both games. Their third game was going to be their home opener against the LA Galaxy on March 14th at their new, $18,000 $18,000 stadium. And so on Thursday of that week, on the 12th, they invited all the media to come and the supporters groups. And they did like a big party, like a big splash opening of the stadium. They gave us a stadium tour. They showed us the press box. They showed us the locker rooms. They showed us everything and said, you know, and the, the team was there. They did an exhibition for the fans. This is it. In two days, we're going to be opening here this is amazing. We're finally going to play a home game and then bam. Bam, COVID. Right. The MLS announced that very day, when I kid you not, or the next day that they are suspending the stadium, they're suspending the season. So, Inter Miami never got to play its home opener. Never got to play its home right. opener. So their first home game,
0: their it's first home game
1: was was 2 weeks ago.
0: Right, mm-hmm. and and yeah. just so it, with Inter Miami, of course, you've g- been able to give us the context and more, <laughs> Michelle. I d- truly appreciate that because I mean, Inter Miami, that that isn't something out of the blue. It's been in the works, as you said, for six years. And professional soccer, particularly at the top tier of Major League Soccer, has been in the works for twenty-five years. And so that that's that's the context of that, and on the other on the other hand you've got nashville sc where you've had the nashville metros you've had you know nasl you've had that i don't want to get the acronyms messed up but the usi and so many different forms of professional soccer in nashville and then of course you have this original group that's obviously started in 2014 made its way through different leagues through NPSL, all of a sudden in 2018, obviously they're 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 under new ownership. Nashville SC gets into USL championship, two years in USL, and here they are in MLS. And that the the stadium issue is quite different. Although in the winter it was looking pretty much like the same in terms of now, politics, right? So you had the ownership group, obviously, Nashville Soccer Holdings failing to come to a second agreement with Metro Nashville and and Mayor John Cooper and but since then throughout the spring demolition completed construction began or at least the construction phase throughout the summer construction has continued and it's going to be very interesting as this season ends how this season or this stadium rather may have lost a couple of months in the construction however it's still a go and they have had an agreement, and it is a a fully privately funded stadium, and although the public is off the hook for uh, the bonds in place, and obviously the the construction itself, there will be a Nashville SC Stadium in where around the fairgrounds is, just nearby, probably about a 10 minute drive from Broadway here in Nashville, Mm -hmm. and so you've got that still rolling, and that's going to be great to see. I'm not sure if they're going to have, you know, what they call is a acoustic blue and electric gold or whatever they like to call their colors Nashville seat in terms of their seats, unlike Miami, but it will certainly be the 30,000 plus soccer specific stadium in Nashville. How many seats
1: is it? Is it 30,000?
0: It'll be over 30,000. Okay. And then, so that will likely be, to my knowledge, will be the largest soccer specific stadium in Major League Soccer to date or as of right now there obviously right. could be a lot to change come summer of 2022 which is where this the stadium is expected uh to to have its first national SC home game in MLS and so that has it's been quite the opposite because Nashville SC doesn't have the training facility they don't have <laughs> as a, i believe you said 15,000 square feet did you say
1: 50 five, zero, 50 50 000. Zero. oh it's it, unbelievable the training facility is in fact, a lot of foreign teams that like to come train in South Florida, they've already been booking it. Um, they've already been booking it, and they're going to use that stadium for friendlies. You know, once. Do you,
0: do you know which? Do you know which national teams have have booked or at least are in interest?
1: Oh well, I know in South America. I know the 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 Peruvian team, the Ecuadorian team. Those teams have already looked at that facility and toured it. And um, yeah, the training site is the building itself is fifty five zero. 50,000 square feet, the building. And it includes, you know, a huge, like a massive, you know, gym, a massive, you know, for the for the trainers, a giant gym. It has like underwater, like I said, underwater uh, therapy things, pools. It has um, classrooms. It has a full cafeteria. Um, and then the offices, you know, the, the team offices are there, the ones that are for the coaches. And the, you know, the only thing that's not there. Is, is the owner, you know, basically the ownership office and the sales and marketing are not there. But everything having to do with with sport. The technical side, of facility, course. Yeah, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's a gorgeous glass, pink, black, and gray themed. Again, it's very colorful, very modern. Um, the players absolutely love it and say it's as nice as anything they've seen anywhere. So it's, the training facility is amazing and that will remain their training facility. So even if and when, They build the stadium next to the airport in Miami, which is also supposed to be around 30,000 seats, if and when. Um, Their training site will still be up there in Fort Lauderdale. So
0: you're going to have two – you're going to have both expansion teams of 2020 basically being the forefront of the largest soccer-specific stadiums in Major League Soccer to date.
1: Right. Of course, as
0: of right now. We'll see what – St. Louis and Charlotte. If Charlotte do get their Soccer Pacific Stadium, I I would assume so. Um, I'm not quite sure what Austin FC is doing, and we're also going to see what Sacramento Sacramento Republic do as well. The thing, though, I think, is looking at these two teams, although they've had similar, at times, stadium issues, but now they're quite in the contrast, and they've also had you know, really tough beginnings in the Major League Soccer season during the pandemic, and it's taken some time for both teams to really catch their breath, but at least the player recruitment, and we're going to get back to what you were doing <laughs> prior to recording this episode because it was very much on par with what we're going to be talking about now, is player recruitment. And National see, of course, they've signed a loan deal with uh, John Cadiz, who's, uh, I guess – He's got some experience in Europe and from, a, he's Venezuelan and he's had a couple of stints with the Venezuelan national team, but he's been, been playing in, in France. He's currently under contract with Benfica in Portugal, but you know, really their top players are coming from these these top really development clubs who usually are putting out tons of talent like Hertha Berlin from Hani Mukhtar, who went on to play in a couple of other European clubs. And then of course, Randall Leal with Saprissa, who was winning the CONCACAF Cup and, you know, of course, you know, a, a, a top-tier club in Costa Rica. But they're not signing someone like Rodolfo Pizarro or, you know, you don't have Blaise Matuidi or even a Lewis Morgan of some sorts. Right. And, of course, their manager, you know, Gary Smith has won MLS Cup in, with the Colorado Rapids, and he has tons of experience in MLS. Yeah. But Inter-Miami, on the other hand, bring in a CONCACAF Champions League winning Diego Alonso from Monterey. And so not only player recruitment, but just technical recruitment has been so it's been vastly different from Nashville SC, and, and really the two expansion teams have been going about their diff, their business a bit different.
1: Yeah, down here, you know, Miami is Miami's a celebrity town. Miami is is about flash, flash and glamour. That's what Miami is. I mean, you guys have great music, live music scene. I love Nashville. Great food, great live music scene, and everything. Down here, it's all about being seen. Who are you with? Where are you? What's the coolest, hippest, latest thing? Um, And so from the beginning, the fact that David Beckham is a co-owner of this team right there, you're starting with, you know, probably the most well-known and glamorous icon that there is in the sports world, you know, globally. He has yeah, a modern huge...
0: football, he's he was. I mean, he's pretty much at the top of modern football in he's, terms of yeah, he's
1: He's, you know, everybody knows who he is. His followings are just absurd on all social media. He has a huge fan base in Asia, a huge fan base in South America, Africa, Europe, all over the world. So, When he's the face of your team from the start, it's called David Beckham's team. David Beckham this, David Beckham that. And he's
0: not even the majority owner per se. He's not the
1: majority owner, but he is David Beckham. So he is the face of the team. And from the beginning, the idea from the beginning was they are going to get players that people have heard of, players that have, you know, what they said, we're going to sign DPs that have Champions League and World Cup experience. They wanted players who are world-known who the fans down here, because, again, this is not saying that the fans in other parts of the country don't know the sport, but the fans down here, they – they watch their biggest challenge with an MLS team here is to get people to watch MLS because all the fans here watch the European leagues and the South American leagues and they watch Copa Libertadores and they watch the Europa Cup and they watch Champions League and they watch EPL and they watch La Liga and they sit around in the morning with their little kids and watch all these games and all these, you know, they, they could name you the roster of every team in La Liga or every team in Argentina, Colombia, whatever, but they're not, for the most part, they're not following MLS. So the idea is get some glamorous players that people down here respect and know. And this is how we are going to lure them into watching MLS. Because right now, people in Miami were not watching MLS. They were spending their mornings watching teams and leagues from far, far away, because there's so much on TV now. So, um, you know, it's great that there's so much soccer on TV. It's raised the profile of sport. On the other hand, it's created kind of a conundrum for MLS because if you're a soccer fan and you have a choice of watching Lionel Messi or turning on an MLS game, a lot of people, especially down here, are going to turn on the, you know, the Messi or Ronaldo or whatever, EPL. So the idea here from the beginning was we want players, the fans and the owners, we want players who are well-known. We want players who, yes, we want them to be good. We don't want them to be coming here to retire But we want players that that people have heard of, players that have had a lot of big experience with the big European clubs, with their national teams, with World Cups and Champions League. And this is what was promised. Well, up until August, Pizarro was by far the best, you know, highest profile name on the team. Someone who did have, you know, national team experience. Most of the other players, you know, they're good but they weren't that that pedigree they didn't have that cachet okay they're good players but they didn't have that cachet that name that thing so then they signed matuidi and they were able to use it with tam money without using a dp spot which was an amazing little negotiation yeah and,
0: and, that, and matuidi i mean i just said he's a guy who's you know he's won world cup with france he's yes. been playing for PSG and playing for Juventus and
1: yes, this is a big time player. He's actually the only current player in MLS who's a world cup champion. The only one in, in all of MLS. Matt is the only MLS champion in the whole league right now. Um, and now today they signed Gonzalo Higuaín this morning. That was the big news. So a former
0: teammate,
1: seen, huh, his teammate, at former Juventus. teammate. So they know each other very well. So they're going to be able to link up on the field and off. Um, so they signed Gonzalo Higuain, who, you know, huge Argentine star, has played in three World Cups, has played for Real Madrid. He was one of the leading scorers in all of Europe from 2008 to 2018. Over those 10 years, I think he scored 148 goals or something. So he, he was scoring goals for Real Madrid, for Napoli, and then for Juventus, and then he did a stint at Chelsea. This is a guy who has played on the biggest teams in the world – has played Champions League games, has played in three World Cups, uh, was a World Cup finalist. So now in addition to Inter Miami having the only World Cup winner in the league, they now have the only two World Cup finalists. The only two World Cup finalists in entire MLS are on this team now. And they were teammates at Juventus. This is a huge signing. And he also, the biggest news on his signing really is that he becomes the highest paid player in MLS. He is getting a salary of $7 million, which is the highest right now. Zlatan Ibrahimovic was making 7.2. He's gone. Uh, they, so they signed Igaín today officially for $7 million salary, which makes him the highest paid player in the league. So absolutely, Inter-Miami's strategy was to go after, you know, bigger named players. They do have some young Talent, that's very good. I mean, Lewis Morgan is great, but Lewis Morgan was playing in a pretty big league already and has played on the Scottish national team. Right, so he's
0: and Andres Reyes great. is impressed as well.
1: Who? Andres Reyes, yes. He's only 20 years old. Um, he's been really good. So, you know, they've got – and Nico Figal has been playing amazing. Nico Figal, who but again, he came from, you know, a big team in Argentina. Right. Um, but by signing Matuidi, Pizarro, and, and now Gonzalo Higain, a very big name – Um, They have three marquee – their marquee has three names on it that every soccer fan who follows any kind of soccer knows those names. And uh, now the question is, can they score some goals? Because they're paying him $7 million, but this team has only scored nine goals total in 11 games. Their record is two two wins, seven ties – I mean, two wins, seven losses, and two ties – Their seven losses, all seven of them have been by a single goal. They have lost all seven games by a single goal. Um, They've only scored nine goals total in 11 games. So they need to score. And Pizarro has been great at, he's a great playmaker. He gets in position. He moves around and dribbles past people and everything. But when they get in the final third, they just have not been able to finish. They just have not been able to finish. So this is what was brought in for he was brought in to be the finisher and uh they're paying him seven million dollars so i am expecting to see some goals for seven million dollars
0: and, and that's the thing too right is going back to how Nashua sea and inter miami have been able to <laughs> develop just a little bit it looks like Nashua C has taken that next step though because against atlanta or at least before atlanta They'd only scored five goals. And so now they're tied with Inter-Miami with nine goals scored this season. And only FC Cincinnati has scored less than the Eastern Conference. They've scored seven. And, you know, right right now, Nashville's looking at three wins, four losses, and three draws. And so they're sitting at three, four, and three with 12 points right now. And, you know, they have, in my opinion, I think they've taken the next step in terms of competition and competing against – like that next, that next tier of MLS, especially in the Eastern Conference. I would have been been very interesting to see how they would have fared in the Western Conference, with, you know, as conference who scores a lot more goals, there's a little bit more fluidity. The quality I think is, is slightly different. They've kind of beat up on each other a little bit in the Eastern Conference. And some teams in the East have also struggled like DC United have struggled. Yeah. Obviously Atlanta, obviously Atlanta United have struggled. And FC Cincinnati, although they seem to have a little bit of promise in the MLS's back tournament, now they're, again, kind of struggling uh, once more. But it will be interesting to see Nashville SC going up against um, Columbus Crew at the weekend. You know, you're looking at the, arguably the best team in Major League Soccer right now, at least just performance-wise.
1: Oh, yeah. Um,
0: and so my thing is, for you, being able to finally watch them in person – and see how they play. What's the timeline for Inter Miami to finally click? We've seen Nashville SC been able to click. Now it's just a matter of improvement, in my opinion. But for you, in terms of Inter Miami, the opposite side of the expansion of this year, now being able to watch a couple of times, when are they going to click and when are they going to take that next step?
1: Well, I thought they clicked when they beat Atlanta. Of course, Atlanta's this team that's struggling, as we pointed out. They played very well against Atlanta last weekend. And, um, you know, I kind of thought, I thought, oh, they've made the breakthrough. Lewis Morgan scored two goals. Uh, Louis Robles had two world-class saves on two PKs in a row.
0: Yeah, and Zico Barco kind of, he, he missed his, he missed his opportunity there. He had a second chance, and Robles right. saved it.
1: Yeah, so Robles made two incredible saves. Lewis Morgan scored two really nice goals. The offense was coming together. You know, the whole thing had been that they they create a lot of chance. They took, like, 19 shots, I think, against Nashville. You know, they've been, they, they would have, like, eight shots on goal, seven, six shots on goal, and zero, nothing to show for it. So they're getting – they've been getting shots – They've been creating offense. They've been, you know, the buildup looks pretty. Like they go from the back to the front and you're going, ooh, look, this is pretty. They're like passing. You know, they're creating spaces. They're they're using the going out wide, you know, doing all, everything that they're supposed to do. But then they get right in the box there and they have a shot, literally point blank in front of a keeper. And it goes over, it goes to the side, it goes, clanks off the post. So they just have really, It's it sounds cliche it really does but they have not been able to finish and now what they've been saying all along the management is we were we're missing the one final piece we're missing the striker we don't have a nine we don't have a striker I mean their strikers were their strikers are Robbie Robinson you know who's a rookie out of Clemson very good but he's a rookie out of college uh you know, Mattias Pellegrini, who has not turned out to be quite as evolved as maybe they thought he was, Julian Carranza, you know, and Juan Agudelo. Those are basically their forwards, you know, and then you've got Breck Shea running around on the left side. But, <laughs> you know, so um, they've been saying all along that they're missing the nine, they're missing the striker, they're missing, this is the final piece, the final piece, the puzzle is not complete. Now, with Igaín, this is not just a striker, this is a world-class striker, who scored 150 goals with Real Madrid and Juventus. We're talking about a serious world-class striker. They now have him in their camp. He's training. So I think that, you know, the jury is still out until we see him out there with the team. That is their complete team then. Their complete team, there's no more excuses, no more we're missing a puzzle piece. All of their puzzle pieces will be in place. They will have a $7 million striker to finish those chances that they've been creating. So now is the real test once he gets on the field. And I don't think it'll be tomorrow because he has to go through quarantine and everything. So I think the earliest, earliest we could see him possibly next Wednesday, there's a home game against New York Red Bulls um, possibly after that they play at Philly the following Sunday. Um, So one of those games he may get in. Um, That is when we're going to be able to really do the report card on this team because so far they were playing without an eight, really, and without a nine. So now they have Matuidi. They have Igaín. They were teammates. They know how each other play. This is going to be very beneficial to the team. And now there are no more excuses. That's it. They've got a $7 million striker. They've got a World Cup winning midfielder. They've got Pizarro running around doing his magical things. They've got Luis Robles playing great in goal with his experience. They have Figal. They've got Luis Morgan. I mean, they've got the roster. They've got the roster to win some games and score some goals. So, um, you know, now, now comes the real test. We're the lowest tier, but at least I'm in the building. I'm not as low as the fans who can't get into the building. The fans actually go, though, to the parking lot, and they sing and they chant, and they bang their drums in the parking lot. They're not allowed in the stadium. but they Oh, have that's been- different
0: because Nashville SC, that hasn't been the case.
1: Oh, here they do. I mean, it's a group of, I would say about 100, about 100 fans come out and they have tents and they set up outside the gates of the stadium. They bring drums, they set off pink smoke bombs. So right before the game kicks off, this giant pink cloud of smoke and the smoke bombs are huge because that smoke goes all the way from the parking lot over to the field so when the team is about to start the game you can often see the smoke is still hanging over the field so yeah the fans here have been showing up in the parking lot to show their support and then they watch um they're watching on the big jumbo screen that's in the stadium it's visible from the parking lot so you can see the replays and all that stuff Um, so they're there and they're banging the drums and making noise the whole game even though they're not inside the stadium. Yeah. Wow. So there's been cool. some atmosphere from the parking lot.
0: Well, tell us where we can find your coverage.
1: My coverage can be found at miamiherald.com. My, my coverage can also be found on Twitter. I post everything on Twitter. It's KAUF Sports, K-A-U-F is in Frank Sports. At, um, that's my, my handle on Twitter. Those are the two main places, miamiherald.com, at Cops Sports on Twitter, um, and you know this is it. I'm, I'm writing all the time. This morning I was up at 7:30, uh, dealing with some issues with the Igain story that went out at nine. Um, and tomorrow night I'll be sitting in my living room covering the game at Atlanta from my living room. But you, there will be a story posted tomorrow night on that game.
0: Indeed, I will be doing somewhat of the same thing when Nashville SEA goes to Columbus, 6.30 Central kickoff Saturday to face the crew top seed Eastern Conference kickoff at Mapfree Stadium. Michelle Kaufman of the Miami Herald covering Inter-Miami, thank you so much having the oral history explain the stadium situation laid out there for all to hear about. And of course, how Inter-Miami has built its team from the ground up thank you so much Michelle
1: thanks for having me it's good to see you Drake hopefully it'll be in person next time
0: absolutely hopefully National versus into Miami at Inter Miami CF Stadium that's that what would I would be like
1: Awesome. that would be awesome <laughs> I'd love it
0: all right once again Michelle Kaufman from the Miami Herald thank you so much I've been Drake Hills your host this is Plugged In a National Soccer Podcast